are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. Hey, Karen, how are you? I'm doing great. Good. How's it going over there? It's going wonderful. It's Good. It's going wonderful. Good. I have a room full of people here that kind of want to know where we're at in the Bible reading marathon. First uh, Corinthians, uh, they're on like chapter 15. Wow. Wow. Okay. You're making good progress there. Yes. It's good. It's going very well. Good. Anything else to report? Uh, no, we think we might be done around the noon hour or shortly thereafter. Okay. Everyone has shown up. We haven't had to call anyone to remind anyone. People just keep arriving, doing their reading, and then the next group moves in. It's just been absolutely a wonderful experience. So, awesome. loved every second of it. Good. All righty. Well, carry on. Okay, thank okay. you. Okay, uh-huh. Bye. Bye. Yay. I knew that was going to be the question on everybody's mind. Where are we at? So I thought we might as well just make it kind of part of what we do this morning. So uh, yeah, that was Karen across the street there uh, doing the Bible reading marathon. In case you're not familiar with what we were doing, we started on Tuesday at noon, um, Genesis 1-1. And so we've been kind of over there all week uh, reading and we are to finish up today. We thought maybe we would need to go till maybe six o'clock or beyond, but as you can tell from Karen's report that uh, we're going to probably finish sometime early afternoon um, and we will have read the entire uh, Bible. It's been a great experience. I mean, uh, I don't know whether you heard Karen say, we, had, we were working with 320 individuals to pull this off um, over six days. And we have been doing sign-ups really for the, probably the last month and a half. And if you've ever tried coordinating 320 people's schedules... And so we were really kind of prepared. I said to Karen, hey, we, you and I, we need to be the last line of defense. So if people don't show up, we're ready to jump in and just kind of start reading. And we did not have to jump in one time. Everybody, I mean everybody that signed up showed up. We had people that came, yeah, we had people that came down from uh, like Northwood, we had people that just kind of heard about it on the news, KIMT, the Globe Gazette did an article. Uh, We just had people that just walked up and just wanted to read. And so we were able to get them on the schedule. We had a lot of openings last week uh, for Saturday and Sunday, and we were able to fill everything. And still, we have more and more people who are calling and want to read and be a part of what's taken taken place across Iowa. I mean, 99 counties in Iowa um, will have read um, the Bible in front of their county courthouses by the end of today. That is amazing to me. And... Just so many great stories that came out of that. I don't know if any of you saw the Globe Gazette, but there's this big picture of Bob Johnson. Bob's an auctioneer here in town. If you've ever been to an auction, chances are Bob's been the one leading that, was a science teacher uh, here, I think, in Mason City Schools for many, many years, well, well known. And uh, Karen Campbell, who is kind of helping me to coordinate this event here for Cerro Gordo County, she and Bob are friends. And so she called Bob and asked Bob, would you be willing to be a reader for the Bible reading marathon. And Bob's response to Karen was, Karen, I don't go to church, I don't read the Bible, and I really don't consider myself a believer. So, you know, I'm just not really sure this is the place for me. And so Karen, if you know Karen, she's very, very persuasive. And so Bob said, look, because you're my friend, I'll do it for you. And so Bob came, I, I think it was like the first, uh, I think it was like from the two to four hour on the first day. I was there when Bob came in. Very, very uncomfortable, very nervous, didn't know what to do with himself. So he kind of comes in the tent, he sits down, and he's just fidgeting. Sits there for just a couple minutes, he gets up, and he just says, I I just got to go sit in the truck. So he just goes and he sits in his truck until it's his time to read. When it's his time to read, he kind of just comes in, sits down, and he kind of reads the Bible. And he reads for his 15 minutes, and he gets up and he leaves. And so we hear that another gentleman had called Bob, who was a team captain, and asked Bob to read on his team. 
And he said, no, I'm already reading for one person. I don't want to read for. I don't want to read with your group. So after he reads on Tuesday, he goes back and he calls this guy and he says, I want to read on your team. He said, something happened to me as I was sitting there reading the word of God. He said, something changed in me and I want to read with your group and I'm bringing my neighbor with me and we're both going to read. Just amazing. And so uh, after the second time, he comes up to us and he says, there's, there's something to this. There's something to this. And he says, I want to read again. So can you, can you get me in for a third time? And so uh, he, he came last night, um, read for a third time, and, and you just see the change uh, on this man. As a matter of fact, I know Bob, um, and so he gets out of his truck and he walks up last night and I said, hey, Bob, you Bible thumper. So... <laughs> I don't know if that helped or not, but anyway, that's just one of the stories that have really uh, come out of this. We've had so many people that just, you know, uh, have come and, and just not to read, but just have sat in there. Some of them just sit in there for an hour or so, and they're just listening to the word read. Uh, the, the courthouse, uh, the, the, the people at the courthouse just could not have been more cooperative, more friendly, more supportive. And so it's just been a phenomenal um, event. We're anxious to kind of hear uh, this coming week um, stories that, that like that one I just shared. With you. I think there's so many stories of how God is moving uh, in this just across the state of Iowa. We're the first state that's ever done something like this. Um, to have the Bible read in, in county courthouses. As a matter of fact, there are states now that are contacting the coordinator for the state of Iowa to say, how did you do this? We want to do this for our state. And it would not surprise me if this just sweeps across um, the nation because there's just something so powerful about that. So I'm just curious, if you were here, uh, if you're here this morning and you read this week, would you just stand up? I just want to get curious to see how many of you are here. Awesome. Yay. Thank you so much for your support. And like I said, it, I told Karen, uh, I've already got my eyes set on next year, uh, doing this again next year. And I just said to her, the beauty of this is, it's just not going to be hard. It will sell itself this time because people now know what we're talking about. And there were people, we were going to end at, at 9 o'clock last night um, just because we were so far ahead that we knew um, that we you know, were not going to need all of the time on Sunday that we thought we were going to need to finish. And so... We kind of talked last night about just finishing early, um, and then we were supposed to start at 6 this morning. Well, we canceled that and moved it to 8, because I've been setting up and tearing down everything. So I, and Karen uh, and, and Lori Hagen, and we've been over there, just been a long, long week. And so we were looking forward to kind of finishing early last night, not having to start so early this morning. We actually had one family that contacted us and begged us. Uh, we want to be a part of this. Um, uh, my husband and I want to read. My mom and dad want to read. Please, 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 is there any way you can just get us some time to read? And so we agreed to stay until 10 last night so that this family could come in um, and, and read. So it's just, it's just been phenomenal to watch um, what this is doing and has done for people who have been a part of that. So if you were a part of that, thank you um, so much for that. It's just so encouraging to see something this um, this you know, monumental and, and life-changing uh, happening and being a part of that has just been so incredible. So we're continuing in our uh, series that we've been kind of talking about this year, again, just looking at really basic Christian doctrine. Because I often make the mistake that, you know, as a pastor or maybe some of you that are, you know, really knowledgeable Christians, again, oftentimes we kind of just make the assumption when we use words like, you know, trinity or salvation or redemption or sanctification, I mean, we, we can throw around a lot of words that we know and understand what we mean, and we just assume other people oftentimes understand and know what we mean when we're using those kinds of words. And so, again, it's important sometimes, I think, just to kind of step back and, again, just talk about what are some of the basic Christian doctrines that we as a church believe. And not just what we believe, but why do we believe 
what we believe. And so we started off the series talking about the Trinity. Now again, some of you may know what that is. Others of you may kind of think, wow, that's kind of a, a word that I've heard before, but I'm not sure what that means. And so this is part of what the series is about. It's just to take time to explain what we need when we're using certain words in Christian doctrine. So the Trinity is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one person, being that they are three distinct persons. They share one essence, but they're united in thought, purpose, and plan. We also looked at, you know, the importance of the Word of God as an essential foundation for a healthy church and, and indispensable in the life of a believer. So we talked about why the Bible uh, is so important. Last week, we kind of started looking more deeply into each member of the Trinity. And so last week we kind of talked about God the Father, and this morning I want to talk about God the Son, Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus Christ came to earth, and in coming to earth, he left the realms of eternity. I mean, he just stepped out of the eternal divine fellowship. And if you can just imagine, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, they are in this perfect relationship. There is this bond of love, of trust, of faithfulness, of holiness, of purity, of righteousness. I mean, you can't even begin to describe the kind of bond that there was, the unity of fellowship that there is between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus chooses to step out of that and to be clothed with human flesh, to be born of a virgin, to become a man, and to walk upon the earth, Emmanuel well, and scripture says that word means God with us. Now, he lives upon the earth as a human being the first 30 years in relative obscurity. He works as a carpenter, a trade that he learns from his earthly father, Joseph, and he kind of lives this very ordinary, common life for a Jewish man of that time. His ministry, which again started after his baptism there in the River Jordan, only lasted for three and a half years. And during those three and a half years, those ministry years, Jesus never traveled more than 30 miles from the place where he was born. And yet today, Jesus Christ is talked about, preached about, and taught about more than anyone on television, radio, or the internet. Though he never wrote one word in a book, more books have been published about him than any other uh, figure in human history. Now, many people, most religions, have kind of their own version, their own ideas of who Jesus is. Some would say he is a good teacher, he's a moral leader, he's a higher angel, he's a greater prophet. Some would say he is one of many gods. Some would say he is the highest evolved state of mankind. Now, to any normal, ordinary human being, any of those titles would be a tremendous compliment and honor. The problem is all of those titles and opinions completely miss the mark of who Jesus really is. Because even if you take all of those things and you just combine them together, they would not even come close to accounting for his fame, his followers, or the faith that people express and put in him. So this morning I want to answer that question as best I can. Who is Jesus? What does the Bible teach? What does the Bible reveal concerning him? Most of you have probably already heard this story about a little kindergarten girl who was given an assignment by her teacher to draw a picture of her favorite person. And without missing a beat, this little girl immediately begins drawing feverishly. The teacher's walking through the classroom and she's looking over the shoulder of her students and she's observing their work. And she comes across this little girl who's just drawing very, very quickly. And the teacher asks the little girl, who have you chosen to draw? And she said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the little, the teacher kind of smiled and she said, but honey, 
nobody knows what God looks like. The little girl replied, they will in a minute. Again, the bottom line is, we don't know what Jesus looked like physically, okay? The New Testament doesn't give us a a physical description of Jesus. We know that Jesus was not white. He didn't have blonde hair and blue eyes. He was a Jewish man, and as a Jew, his skin was most likely rather a dark olive color. His face would have had some very pointed features. He most likely had a beard, And even though we don't know what he looked like on the outside, the word of God tells us exactly who he was on the inside. Colossians 1.15, I think it gives to us one of the clearest and most concise pictures of who Jesus Christ is found anywhere in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, if you could take a 3D image of Jesus and couple it with an MRI, you would produce this passage in Colossians 1.15. And there it says, Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now that word image in the Greek is the, where we get our English word icon. Now the word icon, it means a perfect, a complete replica a precise copy or an exact reproduction in other words jesus christ was fully completely god in human flesh jesus christ the son of god the second person of the triune god was just as much god as god the father and god the holy spirit co-equal co-eternal co-existent Yet Jesus was more than just a replica. He is more than just a reproduction. He is the real deal. If you looked at Jesus, you were looking at God. If you listened to Jesus speak, you were listening to God himself speak. If you were to touch Jesus, you were touching God. And just as Jesus himself said in John 14, 9, he said, whoever has seen me, has seen the Father. And just in case we miss the point, the Apostle Paul, he kind of doubles down, and there in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, he says, for in him, being Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Without a doubt or contradiction, the Bible testifies and teaches that Jesus is fully God. He was not partially God. He was not fractionally God. Jesus was and is and forever will be fully God. Everything God the Father is, Jesus is because Jesus is God. Now in the Trinity, they each have different functions. They each have different roles. God the Father does some things. Jesus the Son does some things. God the Holy Spirit does some things. But again, they're all united in thought, purpose, and plan. There's no disagreement between them. Jesus did not become God when he was born, nor does he graduate into Godhood at some point in his earthly life as some religions teach. He was fully God from everlasting to everlasting, just like his heavenly Father. As a matter of fact, biblical scholars believe That prior to God the Son taking on human flesh and coming among us as a human being named Jesus, they believe he was many times manifesting and appearing to be mankind, to mankind as a messenger of God. Now again, we talked about this uh, during our series on Hebrews 11, but one such example is found in Judge 13, uh, and you may remember this. It's the story of Samson. And in Judges 13, you have the parents of the soon-to-be-born Samson. And they get this visit from an angel of the Lord. And this angel tells this barren parents, you are going to have a son. You're going to name him Samson, and he's going to take a Nazarite vow. At some point in Samson's parents' encounter with this angel, the husband says to the angel, what is your name? And here's how the angel responds in Judges 13, 18. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing it is so wonderful? 
That word wonderful, it is the same Old Testament name the prophet Isaiah used in his description of the Messiah, saying in Isaiah 9, 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The angel of the Lord that appeared there in Judges 13, as well as many other places throughout the Old Testament, was the pre-incarnate Son of God who would later go on to be born of a virgin and take on the name Jesus. It's clear from biblical record that the disciples, the writers of the New Testament, the early church fathers all believed and affirmed what Jesus believed and taught concerning himself, that he was both fully human and fully divine, the hypostatic nature. To be the Messiah, Isaiah, as well as other Old Testament prophets foretold, he is God in human flesh. Remember Peter, Jesus asked one time and he says to the disciples, who do men say that I am? Remember, they kind of list off some names. Oh, some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're one of the other prophets. And Jesus says to them, who do you say that I am? And you remember Peter's response, and he testifies. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus' response to that is, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. He said, flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my Father from heaven what we need, folks, is we need a heavenly revelation from God the Father concerning who Jesus the Son is. You can't get a much clearer, more concise statement of who Peter believed Jesus to be. The Greek word for Christ, again, it comes from the Hebrew word for Messiah. And Peter is basically saying to Jesus, I believe you are the Messiah, the anointed one. You are the one that the prophets themselves would come and save us and redeem us from our sins. You may remember the disciple that Jesus loved, John. I love how he opens his gospel and he refers to Jesus in the following. He said, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God and the Word. And all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being. And, the, and verse 14, and that Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now what John is saying there in that opening statement there in chapter one is that the word was present in the beginning and that that word there was with God and that that word was indeed God. Then in verse 14, John declares that word which was with God from the beginning, co-equal, co-eternal, co-existent with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, took on flesh and dwelt among us. When Jesus was born, it was that word that was in the beginning, was with God and was God, took on human flesh, lived as a human being, and dwelt among us. Again, the disciple John is affirming, he's testifying, he's witnessing to us what he believed concerning the divine nature of Jesus as the Son of God. The disciple John, he was also there, and he recorded this incident when Thomas made his declaration of faith in the divine nature of Jesus. You remember following the resurrection, Jesus is appearing to many people. He has appeared to his disciples. And those times when Jesus appeared to his disciples, Thomas was not among them. And at some point as the other disciples are telling Thomas what they have seen and seeing the risen Christ, you remember that Thomas doesn't believe them. And Thomas says to them in John 20, verse 25, he says, unless I can touch the nails, Mark's in his hand, unless I can put my hand into the wounds in his side, I will not believe. And eight days later, again, Jesus appears to the disciples, and Thomas is among them. And Jesus invites him and says, here, touch my nail prints. Here, put your hand in my side. And you remember Thomas's declaration to Jesus. He just falls to his knees and he exclaims, my Lord and my God, in verse 28. The disciples clearly regarded Jesus Christ as fully God. And they wrote openly about that in their gospels. 
Jesus himself claimed to be God. And even his enemies understood what he was saying. They may not have believed it, but they clearly understood the statement Jesus was trying to make. One such place is in John chapter 10 and verse 24. There it says the Jews, they gathered around Jesus saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. So we know, based upon the word of God, Jesus believed he was God. His enemies believed, or at least understood, what Jesus was claiming. His disciples believed Jesus was divine as well as the other writers of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, who wrote a good portion of the New Testament, clearly affirmed Jesus' deity. In Philippians 2.6, Paul wrote in reference to Jesus, he said, who being in very nature God. As a matter of fact, Jesus' disciples and writers of the New Testament all believed so strongly and resolutely in the deity of Jesus Christ, they were willing to suffer death for their belief. Now consider this, 11 of the 12 disciples of Jesus all died horrific deaths because of what they believed concerning the person and the nature of Jesus Christ. Take Peter, for example. He was martyred because he passionately believed preached and taught that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead, thus proving his credentials and claims as God. The Bible doesn't record the death of Peter, but all the records of the early church indicate that Peter, like Jesus, was crucified. Eusebius, who was a bishop of Caesarea in Palestine and is often referred to as a father of church history because of his work in recording the history of the early church, he cites the testimony of Clement who stated that before Peter was crucified, he actually had to watch his wife be crucified. As Peter watched her being led to her death, Clement says Peter called to his wife by name and said to her, remember the Lord. When it was Peter's turn to die, He pleaded to be crucified upside down because he did not believe he was worthy to die in the same manner that Jesus died. And so Peter was nailed to a cross upside down. Now ask yourself, would Peter allow himself, much less his wife, to be crucified in such a horrific way unless he truly believed what he believed concerning the person and the nature of Jesus Christ? They didn't crucify people because they believed Jesus was just merely a man or a good teacher or a moral leader. The fact that Peter was willing to die for what he believed tells me he believed Jesus was more than just a mere man. Andrew, Peter's brother and another disciple of Jesus has suffered a torturous death because of what they believed about the nature and the person of Jesus Christ. Eusebius said Andrew went and was ultimately crucified in Acacia, which is in southern Greece near Athens. And ancient writings of witnesses say Andrew led the wife of a prominent Roman governor to faith in Christ, and this really infuriated him. So he demanded that his wife, that she recant her devotion to Jesus Christ, and she refused, so the governor had Andrew crucified. By the governor's orders, those who were crucified him, they lashed him to his cross instead of nailing him, and they did that in order to prolong his suffering. Tradition says it was an X-shaped cross, and by most accounts, he hung on that cross for almost two days. 
And everyone that walked by it served as a warning for anyone else who ever thought about putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Again, would you endure something? Would you go through something like that if you merely believed Jesus was just a good teacher, a moral leader, a prophet? What would be the point unless you believed Jesus was more than just a mere man? James was killed with a sword by King Herod. Philip was stoned to death in Asia Minor. Nathaniel was either crucified or tied up in a sack of rocks and thrown into the sea and drowned. Matthew was believed to be burned at the stake. Thomas is either believed to have been killed by being run through with a spear. James was either crucified, stoned, or beaten to death. All of the disciples, with the exception of John, who was basically imprisoned on the island of Patmos serving hard labor, all of the disciples, with the exception of John suffered a horrible death, not because they believed Jesus was a man or a prophet, but because they believed and they spent their lives teaching and preaching that Jesus was divine, fully God, just as it had been recorded in the New Testament. So to say that the disciples didn't really believe Jesus was anything more than a man doesn't make any sense when you see the way and the reason for which they died. What about the early church fathers? What did they believe regarding the person and the nature of Jesus Christ? Justin Martyr, a second century Christian apologist, wrote in his book, First Apology, he says, being the first begotten word of God is even God, both God and Lord of hosts. Irenaeus, a second century bishop and Christian theologian, wrote of Christ in his work against heresies. He referred to Jesus as our Lord and God and Savior and King. Clement of Alexandria, a second century Greek theologian, wrote of Christ in his work, Exhortation to the Heathen, says their truly most manifest deity, he that is made equal to the Lord of the universe because he was his son. Ignatius of Antioch, who succeeded Peter as the bishop of Antioch, wrote of Christ in his work, letter to the Ephesians. He said, there is one physician who is possessed both of flesh and spirit, both made and not made, God existing in flesh, true life and death, both of Mary and of God, first possible, then impossible, then impossible even Jesus Christ our Lord. Ignatius, because of his faith in Christ and his work in establishing the Christian church in Antioch was martyred by being thrown to wild animals in Rome by the order of Emperor Domination. Chris Armstrong, who's a writer for the Christian History Magazine, he says it's the first thing you notice when you read the early church fathers is that they are completely convinced Jesus is God himself. I'm talking about those bishops and teachers from the hundreds and two hundreds as well. It was amazing this week as I was at the Bible reading marathon, somebody had come up to me and said, can you explain to this woman why we're doing what we're doing? And I said, sure. So uh, I didn't know her. I just said, well, we you know, believe that uh, this country was founded upon Judeo-Christian principles, and we believe that many of the laws that we have in our country today uh, really kind of come from uh, the Mosaic laws or other things pertaining uh, to the Bible. And she just cut me off, and she said, I don't believe that. And she started going on about the separation you know, of church and state. And, and so at one point, we, uh, she had made the comment to me. She said, you know, I, I'm so sick and tired of hearing you Christians talk about how your religion is the true religion. And I said, the reason we believe that is because Jesus Christ died and rose again. And she said, I don't believe that. You can't prove that. I said, well, there's a lot of things we believe, but we can't prove. And I said to her, I believe that George Washington lived at one time, but I can't prove that. And she said, well, we have history books that document George Washington. I said, well, we have history books that document Jesus Christ lived, died, and was resurrected. This is why this is so important. You got to know who Jesus is. You got to understand who Jesus is. What does the Bible teach concerning him? Because there's going to come times where you're going to be challenged to have to defend this. Can you do it? Do you know enough about him to be able to stand your ground, to be a witness, to be faithful to the biblical revelation? 
fewer and fewer and fewer people and churches are teaching this stuff. Not here. We're going to teach it. We're going to learn it. We're going to continue to grow in it. Another amazing truth concerning the person and the power of Jesus Christ is found in Colossians 1.17, and he is before all things. By that means before there was ever time, before there was ever a beginning, there was Jesus. And just as it is with God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, there's never ever been a time in all eternity, past, present, or future, where there was no Son of God, no Jesus Jesus is the only person in history who from the moment he was born was as old as his father and older than his mother. Ever thought about that? Paul goes on to say in Colossians 1.17, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Do you realize Jesus is not only the creator of all things, he is the connector of all things. You think you have a hard time holding it all together? You ought to have his job. The Bible says he is holding all things together. Now let me just put this truth in perspective. I'm gonna gonna give you a science lesson here and your eyes are gonna be tended to kind of glaze over but stick with me because you're gonna be blessed by this. Everything in the universe is made up of atoms, okay? The stars, the planets, you and me, everything that exists is simply a collection of atoms, just arranged in different ways, okay? Within the structure of the atom, the neutron is just slightly more massive than the proton. That means that which is called free neutrons, again, that means those that are not trapped within an atom, they can decay and turn into protons. Now, that's a big deal for this reason. If the proton was larger than the neutron and it had a tendency to decay, the very universe that we live in would just simply disappear. Now, let me tell you why. A free proton, unlike a free neutron, is simply a hydrogen atom. If hydrogen atoms begin to decay, then everything made of hydrogen atoms would decay. Do you know what the sun is made of? Hydrogen. So it would simply melt away. Now water, which is liquid hydrogen, would also cease to exist. Since about 74% of the universe is hydrogen, the universe itself would just implode and go away. Now, when you ask a brilliant scientist from MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, this question, so why is it in an atom the neutron is larger than the proton and it continues to hold together? Do you know what their answer would be? I don't know. Let's go deeper and smaller. Do you know how small an atom is? Atoms are the building block of molecules, which are the building blocks of matter. In other words, everything is made up of molecules, and molecules are made up of atoms, and atoms are so small that you could hide a half million of them behind a single human hair. If you were to drill down to the center of one atom, you would find a nucleus with eight positively charged protons, eight neutrally charged neutrons. Now, one of the basic laws of physics is that like charges repel each other. In other words, physically, the nucleus of every atom should just be flying apart right now. Every one of us in this room should be exploding. But when you ask the brilliant scientists from MIT What is holding all of the nuclei of all of the atoms in the universe together? He's going to look at you and say, I don't know. The Bible gives us an idea of how this is all going to end one day. The Bible says that one day the earth itself, it's just going to melt away with such a fervent heat that it will appear to be a nuclear explosion. And I think that's exactly what it's going to to be because all Jesus Christ has to do is just put his hands in his pocket and absolutely everything everywhere will come apart and disintegrate. So Jesus doesn't just, 
you know, hold the whole world in his hand. He doesn't just hold you and me in his hands. He holds the whole universe in his hands, and he is the glue of countless galaxies. He is the cement of creation. He is the ruler of all that there is and all that we are, and this truth should just cause us to fall at his feet in reverence and awe. We ought to all be exploding right now. There should just be pieces of all of us on the walls. Atoms should just be disintegrating right before your very eyes. Everything should be flying all apart and all like charges should just be repelling one another. But they're not because Jesus is holding it all together. Now, I'm not the first one who has discovered this. I won't be the last one to talk about it. Do you know that your bodies are literally held together by what is known as laminins? Laminins are cell adhesion molecules. Laminins are what holds one cell of our bodies to the next cell. Laminins is what you might say is the connector of the human body. Without laminins, we would literally, right now, we would just fall apart. Now, I want to show you what a laminin literally looks like. Again, you can Google this or or look it up in any medical book, and this is what you're going to see. This is what is holding every human being on this planet together. And if you were to ask that scientist from MIT, why is that in the shape of a cross? Do you know what he's going to tell you? I don't know. Well, the Bible tells us why. It is the cross of Jesus Christ. And it is Jesus Christ of the cross that brings us together, holds us together, and one day will take us together to be with him forever. Because Jesus Christ is God, he alone can do what no one else can do. The amazing thing is he can take the hand of God as God, and he can take the hand of man as man, and he can bring the two irreconcilable parties together and make peace where there was no peace. Jesus can reconcile God and man because Jesus can represent both God and man because Jesus is both God and man. Jesus is man's perfect God and God's perfect man. And because of that, he can take the two separated parties and he can bring reconciliation and peace. That's why Paul says in Colossians 1 chapter 1 verses 19 through 20 says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Many times, I just want to close with this uh, this morning, many times throughout history there was often division, disagreement. Oftentimes there would be wars fought over In the churches, there would be wars fought over who Jesus was. And oftentimes, it would take the churches coming together, and they would form a council, and they would begin to uh, talk about and to discuss what they believed about very, very particular things. And so, out of these church councils, there would come things like what we know as the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. Uh, And these were, again, just councils of very uh, educated, God-fearing men who would just simply get together and say, there are some things out there that are being taught concerning God or Jesus that that are not accurate. And so we need to come up with some succinct statements that would kind of tell people what we believe concerning uh, this issue or this person. And one such council is the Council of Chalcedon 451. And there, at this time, were a lot of heresies and a lot of false things were being taught and preached about concerning the person and the nature of Jesus Christ. And so this council got together and they wrote a statement. And I want to share that statement with you. And I wanted to kind of be a benediction for us this morning. And this is what they said when they sat down and asked that question, who is Jesus? And here was their response. We all with one voice confess our Lord Jesus Christ, one and the same Son, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, 
consisting of a reasonable soul and body, of one substance with the Father as regards to his Godhead, of one substance with us as regards to his manhood, like us in all things apart from sin, begotten of the Father before the ages as regards to his Godhead, the same in last days. For us and for our salvation, born from the Virgin Mary, the God-bearer, as regards to his manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, or without separation, the distinction of natures being in no way abolished because of the union, but rather the characteristic property of each, nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and one entity, not as if Christ were parted or divided into two persons. This is who Jesus is and will forever be. This is the foundation of the church of the apostolic church, and we as a church want to be very, very clear of our place, of our position, of our understanding of who Jesus Christ is. Amen? Let's stand together. Father, we just thank you so much. We thank you, Lord, for your word, because without your word, Lord, we would not have the revelation concerning your son Jesus that we do have. And Father, I pray, Lord, that you again would just continue to open our eyes more fully to the truth that is contained. And Father, as this word is being read all across the state of Iowa, Father, I just pray, Lord, that, that people's eyes are going to be open, that your spirit is just going to be moving. Father, I just pray if there are people here maybe this morning who are wondering who Jesus is. Father, there may be people here like Thomas who are, are doubting. They know who Jesus is, but they've just never ever confessed faith and trust in him. And Father, I just pray this morning as Jesus said there to Peter, that the revelation that Peter had was not a revelation that came to him from flesh and blood, but that revelation concerning who Jesus was, it came from you, Father. And Lord, I ask this morning if there are people here that, that just need again that heavenly revelation, Father, that you would open the eyes of their heart, open their understanding concerning the truth of who Jesus is. Father, we thank you, Lord, again for your word. We thank you for the clarity that it gives us. We thank you for the faith that it instills in us. And Father, again, we just pray that, God, you'll take us deeper in our knowledge, our understanding, in our confession, our faith of who Jesus Christ is. We thank you, Father, that it is the foundation of this church. And Father, I pray that you would just strengthen and just reinforce both the beliefs and the foundation of this church and all who are here, Father. And we just thank you again for your revelation by the Spirit and by the Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Praise Community Church, including gathering times and events, please visit us at praisecc.org.